3: If dreaming really were a kind of truce, as people claim, a sheer repose of mind, why then, if you should waken up abruptly, do you feel that something has been stolen from you? Why should it be so sad the early morning? It robs us of an inconceivable gift, so intimate it is only knowable in a trance, which the night watch gilds with dreams. Dreams that might very well be reflections, fragments from the treasure house of darkness, from the timeless fear that does not have a name, and that the day distorts in its mirrors. Who will you be tonight in your dream fall, into the dark on the other side of the wall?
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
3: hey welcome to stuff to blow your mind my name is robert lamb
0: and i'm joe mccormick
3: that was of course a dream by jorge luis borges uh, an author that we uh, we cite and refer to with, with some degree of regularity on the show because uh, he's fat he was fascinated with many of the things we're fascinated with on stuff to blow your mind mirrors um <laughs> dreams strange creatures Stabbings sometimes, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, And in this episode, we're going to be discussing uh, the dream world a bit more. This is a, a topic that we also come back to with some regularity on stuff to blow your mind. And for good reason, right? Because there is a universality to dreaming and it constitutes an altered and highly subjective mental state that runs the gamut from the mundane and the frankly boring to the otherworldly, to the, uh, you know, from the specific to the ineffable and from the comforting to the just absolutely terrifying. It's at once entirely shut off from the waking world and yet can greatly impact it. And uh, we've spent uh, you know, a considerable portion of our conscious history as a species trying to make sense of it and to figure out to what extent these two worlds are connected or to what extent they're disconnected.
0: And the enigma, in many respects, still remains. Now, Rob, when you first told me uh, you wanted to talk about this, it was in the context of looking at a specific mythical monster, I believe uh, one from Japan, right? Yeah, that was kind of, I guess, the
3: white rabbit that I followed uh, into all of this, uh, because uh, it's an interesting monster, and it ties in with sort of practices and superstitions concerning the manipulation of dream on on our side in the waking world, and uh, I and I, I think we are going to get back to that monster, perhaps in a, a forthcoming episode, but uh, as I was reading about this creature from Japanese tradition, I, I started reading more about um how some of these ideas extended back through Chinese tradition as well. And so I thought, well, I should I should maybe go a little broader and looking at um, like the larger slice of Sino-Japanese thought concerning dreams. And I ended up picking up this really fascinating book titled The Dreaming Mind and the End of the Ming World by Lin A. Struve, published in 2019 by the University of Hawaii Press. It's uh, an incredible book, and I was particularly taken by Struve's discussion early on about the mystique of dreams in various global cultures across time, with particular times and places uh, in which the focus of intellectual and or theologic sections um, of the populace are just particularly focused on the dream world and what is going on in dreams and what we should draw from dreams and how much of our waking, effort and time and thought should be dedicated
0: to dreams. So you mentioned in the title of the book, it makes reference to the end of the Ming world. She seems to draw attention to the uh, especially the late Ming period in China as a time when there was a lot of writing produced about dreams and focus on the meaning of dreams compared to maybe uh, the same region of the world in, in earlier or later times. Exactly. Yeah. And this this is something I had never
3: really thought about before, because obviously, to some degree, it seems like everyone is fascinated with dreams. If nothing else, you're going to be interested in your own dreams. And, and then any given culture is going to have some degree of ideas about what they mean or what they don't mean. And then, um, uh, you know, there's going to be sort of a, a global trend towards, um, you know, modernization and rational interpretation of dreams. But I never really thought about this idea that there are going to be times and places where if you were looking at, I don't know, some sort of a a mechanism that was giving you the readings, all right, this is what dream fascination is looking like. Uh Uh-oh, we have a spike. Why is it spiking at certain, or does it seem to spike at certain points? And so Struve is making a point, largely for uh, this period of time at the end of the Ming Dynasty, um, in its decline as it's about to fall and end, and another dynasty is about to to, to come to power. but this argument that there are some other places as well where all the elements are just in proper place to sort of push people inward and particularly to push uh, intellectuals of the day inward those who have uh, you know more time to devote to to these uh, matters and then also you know the the ability to to write about them and have their words passed on to subsequent generations So in in the book, she naturally discusses the subjective nature of dreams, their wide variety and how the, um, quote, deficit of logic and rationality, unquote, in dreams has inspired both suspicion and celebration, uh, which is this duality we'll come back to uh, several times in this episode. Um, Also key to all of this, of course, is that dreams arise unbidden. Uh, Certainly we have no power over what other people may dream, but generally we lack control over what our own dreams are going to consist of. And this can uh, prove, again, a source of great inspiration, uh, even divine inspiration. You know, look what the dream world has given to me. What Look what the powers beyond the dreams have given me. But in some cases, in some worldviews, it may also be seen as threatening or truly terrifying, especially within worldviews where rigorous control of thought, desire and emotion are key. You know, it's like perhaps you're a person and in your you know religious devotion, you spend a lot of time denying yourself, um, say, lustful thoughts, and then you enter into the dream world and they're are no guarantees that those lustful thoughts will not arise there and take on forms that may seem at odds with what you're trying to do with your waking self.
0: Yes, and of course, that can be threatening and unsettling to people. But uh, coming back to the first half of what you said about uh, dreams being an inspiration and having a kind of. Uh, Power or authority. I think that is linked to uh, the the fact about them seeming to be unbidden. The fact that they seem to come from somewhere other than your own thoughts. I mean, you could say that. uh, Well, wait, where do your waking thoughts really come from? Those, if you examine them more closely, might come to seem as unbidden as dreams. Uh, but at least we have a sense more like our thoughts in our waking state are more under our control and our thoughts in the dream world are not. And because they feel like they're not they're, they're less under our control than thoughts in the waking state, they can take on a kind of third-party authority. So it's like you can report the contents of your dreams or even just contemplate the contents of your dreams uh, without the uh, sort of self-doubt and anxiety that you might have about if you were just, say, like offering your personal opinion about something. When it's a dream, it's like you're reporting something you read in another source. It has a kind of third-party authority. And often because dreams are a ascribed to uh, gods or literal powerful figures or ancestors or other you know beings that have senses and information and powers beyond what we have in waking life, uh, the contents of dreams can be uh, can be interpreted to have power and authority over other people like you. I can tell you my dreams and that might have a, uh, a message that you think you should pay heed to because I'm not just saying my opinion. I'm reporting what was revealed to me in a dream. Mm, yeah, it's, it's
3: interesting to sort of self analyze over this, like, if, if uh, either of us were to tell our spouses uh, to report in the morning, hey, I had a dream in which I was wearing this green suit. It's weird, I don't own a green suit. And then you kept reporting the same dream over and over again. Like, how would they interpret it? Um, how would you interpret it? Like, at one some point, would you just be taking it apart, trying to think "Well, what does green mean to me? And like, where is this coming from? Um, um, and, or they might think, well, maybe my spouse really needs a green suit. Maybe that's what the, the, the root of this is. Like deep down, they desire it. Like there's so many ways to sort of tease it apart and try and make sense of it when ultimately like the signal itself is irrational.
0: Of course, it gets even more complicated when the dream is interpreted to include an exhortation or some kind of uh, guide to action. Because consider the contrast between a couple of other things. What if on one hand, I just uh, say to my family, I I think I'm going to shoplift a green suit out of the clothing (laughs) store. uh, And I just present that as my idea. It seemed like a good idea to me. Versus... I say, I have a dream in which I take a a green suit out of this clothing store without paying for it. And I keep having this dream. Well, there it kind of seems like, look, it's not it wasn't my idea. You know, it came to me from the dream. So it's like somebody else is telling me I need to do it. Yeah, this idea that there's something about
3: the dream that does not seem to fully originate in ourselves. This is a this is a theme that uh, uh, that we'll return to again and again here, and something that various interpreters of dreams and sort of dream theorists over time have latched onto. Now, coming back to uh, Lynn A. Struve's book, uh, she says that while in some rare cases dreams have allegedly, um, and allegedly is important because the nature of other people's dreams is always alleged, and even our own. Uh, accounts of dreams that's subject to interpretation remembrance and reporting and so forth uh in some cases you you have dreams that have allegedly directly informed history but otherwise like what does it matter that people are having dreams and reporting them and focusing in on them um there's sort of like two major areas that she looks out at here uh one is we'll explore is like what happens when your fascination with dreams kind of like bubbles over into uh making decisions about the waking world. Uh, But uh, the the other one that she touches on has to do with uh, ultimately with like how a given society viewed consciousness, Uh, you know, how, how a society views its dreams, especially in highly intellectual and authoritative cultures. Um, You know, you can look to the, uh, the surviving writings on dreams, dream journals, and they can ultimately reveal much about that culture and the individuals doing the dreaming and the writing as well as the inner workings of the mind. She writes, I submit that dream writing can indirectly contribute to a history of consciousness, not in the sense of what people were conscious of over time, such as class identity, but in the sense of what people thought consciousness was and how they experienced it. Delving into this can illuminate how they felt and understood themselves existentially, which underlay other actions and endeavors. Consciousness at its most primal is a sense of being an observant entity and it builds and modifies selfhood by the agency of narrating what, it is, what is observed. Attempts to narrate that most ineffable kind of observation of what occurs to us in dreams expose this process at the most elemental level that is accessible to others and therefore on which self interacts with society. So, dream talk can give us valuable information on how people probed awareness itself, under what circumstances they were moved to do so, and how their evolving
0: selves negotiated narratologically with their sociocultural milieu. Hmm, okay, so this, this is interesting. So, Struve is making the argument that. Even if you don't have people say writing uh, philosophical treatises on what they believe the nature of consciousness to be, you can infer a lot of things about what certain people at certain times thought the believe the nature of consciousness to be. By reading their reports about dreams and how they talked about dreams, because in a sense, dreams are a uh, dreams are relating an experience of consciousness separated from action and waking life.
3: Right. Right. Yeah. It, it provides this this sort of distance on inner thought process. Uh, that's uh, and again, I never really really thought about this either. It's easy to sort of think of of accounts of other people's dreams as either you know interesting or or boring or interesting only to them or perhaps interesting in terms of like exactly how it is interpreted uh, based on everything else Uh, and all that's valid. But this added level of like, yeah, you're you're you to some degree. These are accounts of people thinking about their own consciousness. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Now, in this book, uh, Struve ultimately dives into the particularities of of late Ming Dynasty uh, China during the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries. But she also highlights other times and places that seem particularly focused on the power of dream. Um, So, you know, it's all interesting. I think coming from our current place in the consideration of dreams, sort of the tail end of uh, of um, what she classifies as an accelerating Western decline in the belief of of prophetic and oracular dreams. um, That, and she argues that. This decline has been accelerating, at least among the educated, since the 17th century. I mean, we're still obsessed with our dreams. We still talk about our dreams, right? They still have the power to fascinate us, terrify us, and all that. But we're generally more inclined, it seems to me anyway, to to dismiss them as nonsense or the the scrambled remnants of waking experience, thoughts, and feelings. Uh, I remember David Eagleman, when um, I initially uh, uh, interviewed him, uh, the interview before last, he said that he mentioned that he had already always thought of it as sticking his head in the night blender, mm. which uh, I thought was rather apt, you know, this idea that, yeah, this is what you, this is what you get, you know, these are just the mental leavings from the previous day and uh, you can pick through them. You can, you know, and maybe you'll find something useful that is, you know, you know, provides some inner reflection, but ultimately the thing itself has no meaning. It is like a waste product that is extruded from the mind.
0: Well, yeah. Uh, e- eagleman's particular theory about the adaptive function of dreaming was that it is a defensive action of the visual center of the brain to prevent takeover of that tissue in the brain by other senses during the the dark period in the night Um, so that when you know it's nighttime and you have your eyes closed so you're not using the visual centers of your brain those brain cells don't start to get recruited too much by other functions of the brain because our brains are very plastic and part of the evidence he Produced for that was that there seems to be, uh, across the human lifespan and across different animals, there appears to be a negative correlation between the plasticity of brain tissue and how much dreaming you do.
3: Yeah, so it was an interesting uh, hypothesis that he came to after initially seeing it as the night blender. Uh, but uh, you don't hear someone like David Eagleman uh, talking about dreams being the, ve- the, the vehicle or the uh, instrument through which God is speaking to him or to us or to random people. I mean, you, you will find it uh, in the modern world, but for the most part, we don't really lean into that um, on the
0: whole. I mean, I guess technically I want to say those are two separate scientific questions. Uh, one would be, what is the adaptive function of dreaming in the first place? Like, why do we dream? And I think that's the main question that uh, Eagleman was answering when we talked to him about that that the purpose of uh, dreaming is to prevent the nighttime takeover of visual tissue by other functions. But there's a totally separate question, which is what determines the actual contents of dreams? Uh, and you, you could have a, you know, the, in a way that's kind of unrelated to the other theory. You could just say, well, that, you know, the the fact that we need to prevent the takeover of, the, of that brain tissue means you've got to have something going on in there. What's going on in there? What kinds of stuff you see and imagine in a dream I mean, it could be anything. So why do we see the things we see? And that, that's an interesting psychological question that seems somewhat separate. I,
3: I, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, certainly you could have a situation where uh, if the Eagleman's hypothesis was correct, that uh, you could still have God speaking through um, the content of the dreams because it's like <laughs> the brain just needs something to keep the, um, uh, to, to keep things visually powered up. Uh, but it doesn't particularly care what is in there. And then, yeah, you could have God or gods slipping a message in uh, to the stuff in the same way that you might be able to cut up, open the entrails of an animal and supposedly, um, you know, determine the future based on what they contain.
0: Uh, yes. Yeah. So it's technically there's no conflict between you being able to read the future in the in the guts of a of a chicken and the fact that the guts of a chicken are used for digestion by the chicken.
3: Yes. All right. Coming back to, um, uh, to uh, the, these different periods and times so where there's been an uptick in interest in the contents of dreams and this idea that there's something meaningful there to really latch on to. Um, one of the periods that Struve touches on is uh, the Romantic period of, in, in Europe, particularly late 18th through early 19th centuries. Truve writes that the, quote, felt limitations of enlightenment rationalism and mechanism, especially as it concerned the human body and the inner workings of the mind, led to a kind of increased interest in the non-rational and the mysteries of the self, consciousness, and the unconscious mind. She writes, quote, with growing interest in dreaming as a medium through which to link these compulsions, dreams came to feature prominently in natural philosophy, medical thought, the budding field of anthropology, art and art theory, personal notes, and especially creative writing and literary criticism. This occurred as intellectuals responded with elan and or anxiety, hope or dismay to the epical French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, rising nationalisms, and socio-environmental changes attendant on the early industrial revolution
0: if i understand struve's argument correctly this seems to fit with the pattern of the late ming period in that uh i think she understands an increased focus on dreaming among the people producing writing as a common feature of periods where there is a lot of uh where there is a lot of strife and rapid change
3: yeah yeah i think so and i think that's that's one of the main reasons that the the romantic period here is such a a nice um uh, parallel example. Now, um, in, in in bringing up uh, Romanticism, you know, the mind instantly goes to particular authors of that period. Uh, say, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, uh, who lived 1772 through 1834, whose work often explored dreams uh, as well as those visions brought about through the use of opium. So, I wanted to to look at a like another text that dealt with this topic. And I ran across a a very interesting book from 1998 titled Cooleridge on Dreaming by Jennifer Ford. Uh, And it explores this naturally in the specifics of the poet's work, but also in the the larger context of 18th and 19th century dream fascination in the West. Uh, You see examples of this in the work of other notable romantic authors as well, like Lord Byron and Thomas De Quincey, who, of of course, also famously imbued opium. Ford writes that there was no consensus concerning the nature of dreaming at the time uh, during the romant- romantic period, with opinions uh, really centering on the big three interpretations. So, one potentially divine visions, you know, could be could be God sneaking in a, a, a voice or a message there, or some you know supernatural entity with uh, uh, with our interests at heart, I guess. You could also look at that as, two, a font of creativity and inspiration, uh, a natural place for the the poet's and the writer's mind to go and the artist's mind. Or, three, dreams as residue or byproduct, which is, you know, what we've been discussing, this idea that maybe dreams are nothing but just sort of the reassembled contents of things we thought about or observed, et cetera, during the course of our day. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Cooleridge was much inspired by the writings um, of antiquity on the matter, considering the idea of uh, prophetic dreaming especially, but he also consumed contemporary writings that included both serious attempts to understand dreaming from the vantage point of of, uh, current medicine and physiology, uh, as well as magical and mystical strains of thought. Now, this is kind of an aside here, but um, uh, one of the things that uh, Ford points out is that one of the authors that he would have, of course, uh, read... Uh, from antiquity would be uh, Homer, and who in the Odyssey describes the two gates from which dreams may arise. Quote, for two are the gates of shadowy dreams, and one is fashioned of horn and one of ivory. Those dreams that pass through the gate of sawn ivory deceive men, bringing words that find no fulfillment. But those that come forth through the gate of polished horn bring true issues to pass when any mortal sees them.
0: Well, in a way, that belief is not very helpful. So it's like (laughs) some dreams could contain prophetic content and other dreams are there to deceive and misguide you. But you can't you can't know which are which.
3: Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the ideas presented by the Gamork in the never-ending story. You know, the idea of this link between creative, creativity and deception between dream and creations of imagination and and lies. Um, but and I guess this get touches on like one of the real problems of of valuing the content of dreams is that like sometimes dreams are just stupid. Um, I mean, there are going to be maybe some there's some versions of it where you're like, OK, there's always something there it might be cryptic, but there's something there that might be your viewpoint regarding dreams. But at times you're going to have an uphill battle because you're going to have that dumb dream where you're uh, what, like in the over the, the words of Mitch Hedberg, uh, you know, had a joke about a dream in which he had to build a go kart with his old boss or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to have dreams that you're really going to have to have to try hard to find some sort of prophetic Um, interpretation or meaningful interpretation of what's there. So easier to say, well, you know, sometimes they come through this gate and they mean something. Sometimes they come through the other gate and it's just complete crap. Now, Ford has a section here where she briefly goes through mentioning, you know, what other writers of antiquity had to say about it, like Hippocrates and and much later Galen both agreed that dreams mattered and they were connected to health. Uh, They also wrote that, um, Galen in particular, wrote that they could contain divine messages of healing Uh, contained in dream symbols and so forth. Uh, But for both of these individuals, however, food and digestion were deeply linked with dreaming.
0: Mm, Yeah, you might be an undigested bit of
3: beef or cheese. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's it's exactly the the example uh, I thought of as well from um, A Christmas Carol. Now, Plato, Aristotle, and Cicero, for the most part, uh, and with some notable exceptions, argued that dreams were were not prophetic. Uh, Apparently, Cicero kind of, was wishy-washy on this. Uh, Aristotle, however, was pretty firm on the matter. Ford writes, quote, he explained sleep as the rising to the head of vapors from digestive processes. Dreams could be explained by their relation to the material world and to waking thoughts and not as a result of prophetic messages from gods. Totally in the potato camp here.
0: There's more of gravy than grave about you. That's Aristotle. yeah. <laughs> Now, but still,
3: this idea of prophetic dreaming cast a long shadow across Western history. And of course, you know, outside of what's going on in the like, intellectual uh, realms of any given culture, obviously you, have, you can have deeply rooted folk traditions and so forth as well, which uh, you know, none of the, I don't think the authors particularly get into that as much. But um, with the Christian tradition, Ford p- points out, there was always a lot of back and forth on the matter because the Bible itself seemed to be of two minds on prophetic dreaming, sometimes championing the uh, prophetic power of dreams and other times denouncing it. In fact, casting out the dream observers with the soothsayers and the wizards in the book of Deuteronomy.
0: Well, I feel like this, this is a repeating pattern, and I think this will come up again in uh, some stuff we'll, we'll talk about later, either in this episode or in the next one in the series. But there's always sort of a tension in the practice uh, in, in the reception of the practice of receiving revelations, whether mm-hmm. that's through divination or whether that's visions and dreams and so forth, because many religions will have that type of content in a sanctioned way, like maybe some of its orthodoxy or its, uh, its history, its stories, its current, uh, you know, uh, priesthood will practice things that involve some methods of knowledge uh, of that form, and that will be the sanctioned version. But then there is sort of an unsanctioned version that is not promoting orthodoxy or is uh, subverting the power of the priesthood or whatever. And, well, you don't want to allow that stuff. So it's kind of like, you know, well, there were some there were some visions and dreams that were legitimate, and uh, and that's part of what we believe now. But if somebody is telling you new information from visions and dreams, then you got to be careful about that.
3: Yeah, that's not canon.
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: But anyway, during the time of the Romantics, a lot of this increased interest and confusion about dreaming had to do, Ford stresses, with, quote, the perceived unsatisfactory factory mechanical and associationistic explanations of dreams offered by John Locke, David Hartley, George Berkeley, and others. Interest in the forces and features of psychic life began to increase, and a concept of the unconscious mind began to emerge. So it seems like a lot of these unsatisfactory ideas involve digestion. So I guess, you know, ultimately, it's not very romantic to, for someone to say, look, that dream you had, I know it was really inspiring, but it was essentially like you passing gas in the night. Uh, you shouldn't give it a lot of attention unless it is, you know, interfering with your ability to sleep. But it also comes back to what you said earlier about like a time of change, a time of like changing ideas and emerging ideas, and sometimes this kind of feeling of like, well, no that that can't be right. That's not how I feel about it. That's not what uh, these voices from the past have necessarily um, agreed with. Now, Coolidge himself wrote that um, that he thought much of these discussions were too dismissive of the personal, psychological, mysterious nature of dreams, as well as their overall value to the dreamer. Um, but he he also read the writings of uh, Scottish metaphysical rationalist Andrew Baxter, and was particularly taken by his arguments that dreams did not originate in one 's own soul but were brought on by external beings, so dream spirits were to blame because otherwise, how could we dream something that we had never witnessed or thought or felt um, in the waking world? How could we meet someone in dreams that we had never met in reality?
0: This seems like an odd thing for Coleridge to be. Uh, enticed by because like he was a writer so <laughs> mm-hmm. you'd think he'd be more familiar with the concept of creative imagination and how like yes a character can start talking back to you in your mind and uh, you you haven't met them you you made them up this is part of the creative process i i yeah I, it's a good point i, I kind of interpreted those being
3: like um again to to her point like recoiling a little bit from this you know what the rational world is saying about dreams you know that it's it is potato and then on the other hand uh you know wanting this idea that's more in keeping with the muses that dreams are overpowering that they um that they are, are, are coming to us and giving us something, giving us a creative gift that we might run with. Um, and apparently this, was, this is the kind of thing that Baxter was talking about, you know, the idea that the, the dreamer is visited during sleep and that, quote, dreaming may degenerate into possession.
0: Oh, okay. So you could imagine it being attractive for Coleridge and and other romantic writers to think like this in the same way it might have been attractive for uh, writers who literally believed in the muses as entities, because it gives that same kind of third party authority to what you're writing uh, that I was talking about with dreams earlier. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, if, oh, I, I didn't just make this up. This was given to me by a divine being.
3: Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a bit of some of our past discussions about the uh, bicameral mind hypothesis, you know, as sort of like, okay, there's the idea that a God might speak to you. But here's this other idea that kind of gets you to a similar place, but Mm -hmm. through a different different strain of more rational thinking. Though I guess at the end of the day, you're still talking about some sort of entity outside of your own being in the case of Baxter's writing, so uh, I don't know, uh, but I guess I tend to sort of interpret it here as being like you know it's the the, the irrational and the in the rational inside any given person's mind, and certainly you're able to to hold on to and be attracted to conflicting ideas. But still, from that idea, it's a short walk to pre-existing concepts of dreams brought on by demons and the like. I believe Baxter wrote about the incubus and the succubus a bit, at least the general concepts. Um, The link is made between nightmare and madness. And Ford makes special mention of this, quote, the notion of dreams as possessing the dreamer provides a rich source of anxiety and thoughtful deliberation for Coleridge and many others who ventured into the often hostile territory of the dream. Dreams were involuntary events and could not be controlled. Often the dream itself was perceived as the controlling force. Mm, Yeah. I know in my case, oftentimes I will sort of think, um, you know, vaguely about like there being something that is programming my dreams. Like there's a little person in my head that makes a lot of programming choices, like it's a TV channel Mm -hmm. and often makes just illogical programming choices like like I'll I'll look at it and be like, well, think of all the things that I did yesterday that I read about or experienced and or watched on television. And this is the dream you gave me. This was the programming that was selected for my night's entertainment.
0: We're rerunning Transer's Five five times in a row.
3: (laughs) I would love Transer's Five dreams, but no, it's 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 generally a, a lot more boring. It's like, I don't think, you know, the target audience here. But anyway, one sees this idea of dreams possessing the dreamer in the works of Coleridge, De Quincey, Wordsworth and others. Um, But Coleridge, again, also kept abreast of modern medical writings, as well as the writings of of people like uh, the physician uh, Erasmus Darwin, who stressed, quote, the terror of involuntary thoughts, uh, sleep and dream as a subhuman state in which we cannot fully exert our will. So, um, you know, I I guess this seems to be just a common theme that everyone who's thinking about dreams has to come up against is that there's. We, we can't fully control it. And what does that lack of control mean?
0: Well, again, when I really think about it, the, the question it raises is, what does it mean when we do feel like we're in control of our thoughts? What causes mm. that sensation? Uh, because, again, like... I feel like the closer you look at the moment to moment functioning of your waking mind, the more mysterious the origins of your thoughts becomes. And it can start to feel like a dream where like, wait a minute, why did I just think about that? Did I did Mm -hmm. I really have control of thinking about that? What made me say trancers five? Where did that come from?
3: Yeah, though, uh, I know what you mean, though, I guess at times with our waking thoughts and, you know, if we have a really active, uh, you know, default mode network, we can kind of self-analyze and we'll be like, oh, well, this is why my mind went here. And then, you know, we can sort of try and trace it. But uh, dreams often are more difficult to interpret along those lines. Like they're less easy to interrogate.
0: Well, I guess sort of what I'm getting at is that it seems like maybe the difference is that in dreams, we have less of the illusion of control over the direction of our own thoughts that we feel we have during waking states. Yes, absolutely.
3: So you can see a number of these ideas reflected in a poem um, by the romantic author Lord Byron. Uh, this, is a, this is a piece that Ford um, also um, uh, references in, in the book. Uh, but I thought it might be nice to read just a, a portion of it here. Uh, again, this is from Lord Byron's The Dream. Uh, Joe, would you do the honors since I um, I read uh, the Borges at the beginning?
0: Oh, sure. Let's see. So this is an excerpt from The Dream. They pass like spirits of the past. They speak like sibyls of the future. They have power, the tyranny of pleasure and of pain. They make us what we were not, what they will, and shake us with the vision that's gone by. The dread of vanished shadows, are they so? Is not the past all shadow? What are they? Creations of the mind?
3: All right, well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode, but we'll be back in part two. And we'll continue to discuss this idea of the mystique of dreaming, these different places where in, in time where, there's, where there seems to have been a surge in interest in the power of dreams and the, um, like the practicality even of dreams. So we'll look at a few other different cultures, including the, um, uh, the Ming Dynasty uh, example uh, that Struve is directly mentioning. And eventually we'll get to that monster. I don't know. That may be in, uh, even further along. But at the end, there's a monster at the end of this book is
0: what I'm saying. Will it steal my dreams?
3: It might. It may, very well might. Or it might just help you build Ikea furniture for um, you know all night long.
0: Will it steal a green suit for me?
3: Ooh, one would hope. One would hope. That monster has connections. All right. Well, in the meantime, if you want to write in about your dreams, hey, we're always happy to hear them. Um, our listener mail episodes published on Mondays, core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays on wednesdays we do a short form monster fact or artifact episode and on fridays we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on weird house cinema
0: huge thanks to our excellent audio producer jj posway if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your
1: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.